things that pressure can do is it can rob you of hope and you become immobilized and passive. Sometimes, everybody, we get disappointed with God unfairly because we get angry with him for not delivering what he never promised. What's very clear here is that faith does not exempt us from difficulty. Let's not be surprised at pain or heartbreak. We are continuing our springtime uh, series. Actually, we're going to finish this series next weekend, looking through the book of Acts, the great story of the early church. And this weekend's, uh, this weekend's message is called The Jesus Revolution. The Jesus Revolution. Uh, two years have gone by, if you will, since last weekend. How many of you were here last weekend? Just raise your hand. Okay, that's good. How many of you are here this weekend? Two years have gone by. The Apostle Paul has been in prison. Now a new Roman governor is in charge. And guess what? There's another trial that Paul has to go through, this time before the new governor and the Jewish king. Let's have a look at Acts 26 and the first four verses. Then Agrippa, that's the Jewish king, said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Uh, This last week I had another uh, accent challenge. I'm frequently accent uh, challenged, uh, particularly when I go through a drive-thru. They never understand me. At all, um, I order a hamburger and fries. I come out with 47 apple pies. It's always, it's always a disaster. This week I had to go to the Home Depot, which my wife uh, Kay was nervous about because she uh, she knows that I'm practically useless. Anytime I try and fix anything, my whole family gathers for a time of intercessory screaming. So. She uh, knew this wasn't going to go well. I needed to get a tarpaulin, a tarpaulin. So I, I, I went down to, uh, well, okay, it's starting already, isn't it? So I go down to Home Depot with my friend Nigel, and uh, I, I, I go up to the counter, and I, I said, uh, Could I, I need to get myself a, a tarp, because I've got me a truck now, by the way. I'm a real Colorado man. I got... I got, I got my cowboy boots and I got me a truck. So I go up to this guy and I said, Can I, I need a tarp. He said, what? I said, I need a tarp. He said, what is that? I said, oh, it's a tarp. And there's a girl standing there. She said, I don't know what he's saying, but I like the way he's saying it. And I said, a tarpaulin. He said, what is that? I said, you know, I said, I need a tarp. He went, oh, why didn't you say so? I like, you know, that's fine. I was having a challenge being understood, and the guy thought I was probably quite crazy. Here in this story, the Apostle Paul is giving an explanation for the way he's living his life. And literally, people think that he might be out of his mind. He is standing before a couple of really big power brokers. The governor Festus, newly appointed Roman governor replacing a previous corrupt official. 
We met him last weekend, the governor Felix. But standing next to him is King Agrippa, a Jewish king who really wasn't in any way living out his faith, but sadly was considered by the Roman authorities to be the the go-to guy when it came to Judaism. Uh, That's why he's in the court. Uh, And he's curator of the temple. He has power to appoint the high priest. He oversees the temple treasury. So the Romans Romans think he represents uh, Judaism well, even though he doesn't. Uh, And these two, they come in. And and Luke tells us that they come in with great pomp. Uh, The Greek word there is fantasia, from which we get the word fantasy. It's like a a big fantasy. Agrippa would have been dressed in purple and Festus in red as a Roman official. And there's a lot of pomp and ceremony about this whole intimidating deal. Now, when when I get to hang out with the Queen of England, which, you know, happens quite a bit, um, you know, we're kind of friends, we're on first name terms, hey Lizzie, you know, all that. Um, it's kind of informal these days, you know, we're, we're pretty close and like, I recently, we were together and, uh, and uh, it was a, it was a good time. Uh, Prince Philip there is just laughing at one of my little witticisms and uh, the Queen was actually just turning to somebody off camera and she said, isn't he, isn't he cute? I listen to Timberline podcasts every week, that's what she... Uh, Actually, I, that's, that's photoshopped. That's not real at all. Some of you were really looking impressed right there. I wish I didn't have to tell you the truth. If I ever did get to meet the Queen, it would be intimidating. You're not allowed to turn your back on the Queen ever. So you have to, you have to bow and, and, and retreat and do all this stuff. Well, here are these two. They come in. There's great pomp and ceremony. They're powerful, Agrippa, and Festus, but they're certainly Agrippa's somewhat dysfunctional. You see, Festus was a good governor, but he ruled only briefly. But this Agrippa guy, he's messed up. He's got a woman called Bernice with him. Now, they're in a relationship, but here's the ugly truth. She is his full-blood sister. So he is now in uh, an, an incestuous relationship with his sister, And she is really something else. She'd previously been engaged. Then she married her uncle. Then she entered into an incestuous relationship with her brother. And then she became mistress to the Roman Emperor Titus. She was so immoral, so scandalous, that even in cosmopolitan Rome, they wouldn't stand for her. And the emperor had to send her away. This is is who is in the courtroom. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, stands up and he describes, ladies and gentlemen, nothing less than a revolution that has taken place in his life. A 180 degree turnaround. He has been radically affected by Jesus. Now, now there's a word that we sometimes hear on news reports that has negative connotations for obvious reasons. It's the word radicalized. When we hear about someone being radicalized, we think of terrorism or extremism. But I think it's appropriate to say that there is a sense in which, wonderfully, gloriously, Jesus comes to bring revolution that, if you will, radicalizes us 
for the kingdom. That's what had happened to Paul and that's what had happened actually in the world because of Christianity. The philosopher and theologian David Bentley Hart has written a book called Atheist Delusions, The Christian Revolution and Its Fashionable Enemies. And he says this. He says, among all the many great transitions that have marked the evolution of Western civilization, only one, the triumph of Christianity, can truly be called a revolution, a truly massive and epochal revision of humanity's prevailing vision of reality. You see, in Roman culture, there was no worldview that could help them figure out some of the deeper problems of life. The only worldview they had was social status. And so if you weren't born in the right social status, then too bad for you. What that meant was gladiatorial games, where people watched people kill each other for entertainment. They would discard unwanted babies and leave them to suffer and die in the streets. The crucifixion of criminals. All of this was shaped by the prevailing worldview at the time. And then suddenly the Christians showed up. And they started talking about all of us being created in the image of God. And it wasn't just a social and political shift, but there was a revolution that happened. That revolution had happened in culture. That revolution had happened in Paul. And God wants that revolution to come to us. So what can we learn as we dive into this? Follow along in the bulletin with me. First of all, let's see that this revolution is about Jesus and not mere religion. It's about Jesus and not mere religion. Hear what Paul says in Acts 26. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Now, Paul has got this passionate background in religion and he doesn't completely despise it. In fact, if we were interviewing Paul today, I'm not even sure he would just say, I became a Christian on the Damascus Road. I think at that stage he would have said, I became fully Jewish because I met the Messiah of the Jews who is Jesus. But Paul had had an experience of religion but now in Jesus he fully experiences what it means to actually know God. Can I make a statement that might sound kind of weird? A little bit of religion can be highly dangerous because it can inoculate us against the real thing. I did not become a Christian until I was 17 years of age. I became a Christian at the age of 17 in December 1837. (laughs) Why didn't I become a Christian until then? It's because, you see, I grew up in Britain. And I was suffering from a disease known as post-Constantinian hangover. So I've never heard of that one. What is that? Well, let me tell you. 1,600 years before I was born, the Emperor Constantine announced that everybody in the Roman Empire should now be Christian. And he called it the Holy Roman Empire. If you were in the Empire, it was expected, 
although not all conformed, that you would be a Christian. And so on March the 7th, 321, Sunday, which used to be a day dedicated to the Roman sun god, was officially converted to being Sunday, the Christian day. So you see, growing up in Britain, I just assumed that because I was part of the original empire, that I was in. Someone said to me, are you a Christian? And I said, of course I am, I'm British. This was not just mere arrogance, this was the result of being inoculated with a little dose of religion. Is it possible today, is it possible that some of us have got a little dab of religion behind our ears? Bit of belief here, bit of church attendance there, bit of vague moral code here. But we have never yet experienced the moment when we have said, either perhaps for some growing up in a Christian home and gradually moving into a relationship with Jesus, or having a crisis moment. Not not all of us can remember the moment. It doesn't matter how you come to Christ. What matters is that you come to Christ. But have we experienced the revolution or have we been inoculated with a bit of religion? At the end of this service, a few minutes from now, there will be an opportunity to do something about that. Secondly, the revolution is about freedom from the deepest shame. Freedom from the deepest shame. Again, look at what Paul says. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death... I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. This man was a Christian killer. He repeatedly talks about it. But see this. He doesn't in any way try and pretend that that was not horrendous. He faces his history... And then he goes on to accept God's grace and forgiveness for that which was evil in his past. I think in our culture right now, we're living with a tendency to dismiss guilt, all guilt, as being negative. It's almost like we don't want to say that anything is wrong. Uh, Professor Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists, In his book, The God Delusion, he says, In our universe there is no design, no purpose, no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Really, Professor? If that is true, Auschwitz was okay. If that is true, there is no moral compass for anything, if you consider the implications of that statement. And it's not just the academics. Does anyone remember Anne Landers, the agony aunt? Anne Landers said this, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. Remember that guilt is a pollutant and we don't need any more of it in the world. Wrong, it's good to feel guilty when you are. Otherwise we become a culture of psychopaths and sociopaths. But Paul faces his guilt but refuses to live his life smothered with shame he receives the grace of God. I think that can be hard. 
Martin Luther, many years ago, said most Christians have enough religion to feel guilty about their sins, but not enough to enjoy life in the Spirit. If I came up onto this platform this morning and I said, you know, on the way to Timberline today, God spoke to me and told me the name of some people here today in the 10 o'clock service who have been awesomely naughty. And I'm going to name you right now. Now, even though you know this is just an illustration, some of you are ducking right now. You're going, oh, oh boy. But if I came up here and said, God has spoke to me on the way here to Timberline today and there are some people here he wants to celebrate. You are the apple of his eye. You have done so well. A lot of us would be looking around going, wonder who that might be then. Because we tend to count ourselves in for judgment and out from grace. Why not stop struggling? Face what you did that you most regret, but let God take it. Let the good news be good. Paul didn't deny his shame. He faced it, but he received grace for it. Thirdly, thirdly, this revolution helps us to see relationships in a new way. Seeing relationships in a new way. Look at Acts 26.12. On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. How do you persecute Jesus? How do you persecute Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven? How do you do that? I'll tell you how you do it. You persecute his people. Because when you hurt people, we hurt Jesus. Now that's true negatively, and it's also true positively. When we bless others... We bless Jesus. You say, where's that in the Bible? Well, it's in Matthew 25, verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, answer Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, both positively and negatively, the way we do relationships affects Jesus. What that means is we don't just live our lives in little spiritualized compartments. You know, we, we read the Bible through every year, but we're still pretty mean in the workplace. Holistically, we live our lives as an act of worship. Number four. This revolution calls us to live for God's purposes. Living for God's purposes. Here's what Jesus said to Saul as he was called back then. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. The Apostle Paul is saying, after two years in jail, this is my passion. This is my purpose. This is what gives meaning to my life. Isn't it amazing what people will live for? What their purpose will be? I was looking at the Guinness Book of Records recently and just discovering some stuff that people live for. You think, why? Like Michel Letito from Grenoble in France. His passion, believe it or not, is eating metal and glass. Since 1959, he has consumed two pounds of metal and glass every day. His diet so far has included 18 bicycles, 15 supermarket carts, seven TV sets, six chandeliers, two beds, a pair of skis, a Cessna light aircraft, and a computer. That's an interesting passion in life. Then there's Amra Kumar Jha of India. He holds the world record for balancing on one foot. 71 hours and 40 minutes in 1995. This is his passion, one foot balancing. My personal favourite is Peter Dowdswell. His life's work is holding the world record for prune eating. (laughs) In Rochester Stadium, New York, he ate 144 prunes in 31.2 seconds. They had to clear the stadium shortly afterwards. (laughs) Kind of crazy things to be passionate about. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, this is my passion. And by the way, when he says repent, he said, I'm calling people to repentance. That word repentance needs a makeover. Because we tend to think repentance is a weird guy standing on a street corner holding up a big sign that says, repent. It's the preacher barking at you. Repent. And yes, it does include turning away from sin. But if you asked a first century Jew what repentance means, they would give you a completely different answer because repentance in first century terminology means to embrace a new view about everything. Let me give you an example from history. Some Jews were trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. A young Jewish officer, Roman officer, called Josephus, rode out to try and persuade these guys to give up their, their, their campaign. It was never going to work. Josephus rode out to meet them and he said, repent and believe in me. He was not asking them to experience a religious conversion. He was saying, boys, you need to have a totally new way of looking at everything. That is what repentance actually is. It's a new worldview about everything. And it's about passionate living. So hear what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Philippi, Philippians 3. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This word passion, by the way, 
comes from two words, a Latin word and a Greek word that means suffering. When you're passionate about something, you might have to suffer for it. That was Paul's experience. I, I read this week about Eugene Ormandy, uh, an orchestra conductor. He was conducting the Philadelphia Philharmonic and he was so vigorous in his conducting, he threw his, his, his arm out of joint because he was so passionate about the music. I don't think passion's got much to do with how much noise you make or how high you jump. But I'm challenged by that. He, the Apostle Paul has been in prison for two years and he's still passionate about his faith. God, give us that. God, give us that widescreen, big picture worldview. The last thing is this. This revolution calls us to share our personal story. Sharing our personal story. Acts 26 and verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest things we can do is share our story. Share our story. Now that does not mean rushing out of here and running into the restaurant or the workplace this week and saying, gather around because I've got to tell you my story. Very often, sharing our story will come in response to an invitation to do so. Paul is invited to speak here. Look at what we read in First Peter chapter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Not always, but most often, sharing our story will come as a result of an inquiry. Someone says, well, tell me about that. But how wonderful it is when we can do that. When you do it, be kind. If you study this passage, Paul was so kind, gracious, didn't react to the ridicule that he experienced. And know as well that our task is, is not to convert people, but to sow seed and just to... Share something of the story. And, and by the way, tell the truth. Tell the truth when you share your story. You heard about the guy that stood up and wanted to share his testimony. And uh, he said, you know, I've lived a life of gratuitous debauchery and great sin. And then he said, uh, and then I, he said, I gave my life to Jesus when I was five years old. Why did he do that? It's because he thought he had to have a good testimony. Sometimes I thing as a good testimony. If you were raised in a Christian home and you don't have some big lurid past, you don't have to paint it as if you did. But every one of us has a story. And the Apostle Paul shared that story. And then he says, looking into the eyes of a king who's partnered with his sister, and a Roman official 
kind of makes a little joke. He says, I wish that you were just like me. And then he throws in and he says, except for these chains, of course. Don't want you to be locked up like me. And with a winsome way of communicating, the Apostle Paul is saying, come the revolution. May it come to you, King. May it come to you, Roman Governor. May it come to everyone that hears my voice, he's saying. Earlier in this service, Jen wonderfully shared about a moment when sitting one, two, three, four, five rows back, she realized that she needed to make a clear commitment to Christ. In the next few seconds, there is going to be an opportunity for people here to do that. God has been doing some amazing things among us. In the last service, probably 30 to 40 people made a response to Christ, many of them for the first time, we believe. Five rows back, having prayed prayers and cried out to God earlier, but Jen, at the age of 30, effectively said, I want the revolution. And I'm sure much of the fuel for her energy and passion now comes because Christ is at the center of our lives. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray and then I'm going to offer you, us, a prayer that can be used if you want to make that commitment today yourself. Let's bow our heads. We thank you for this story, Lord, of a, of a courageous man. A prisoner in chains, but he's still passionate. Thank you that he was able to talk about his terrible history. But he faced it and he accepted grace. In the quietness, Lord, we bring our greatest shame to you. that we might not be debilitated by it. Help us to open our hands to freely accept your grace for that which we most regret. Help us to see the way we do relationships in a new way. Hurting others, we hurt you. Blessing others, we bless you. Help us to be a people of purpose and passion. And help us when we have the opportunity to share our story. Let's keep our heads bowed. I'm going to say a simple prayer and you can echo this prayer in your heart. Please listen very carefully. You can do this if you are making a first-time commitment to Christ. You are becoming a Christian today. You can use this prayer. So get ready. And you can use this prayer if you know that you've had a kind of A bit of religion, but today, just like Jen, you need to firm up and clarify that you want Christ not just to bless you, to help you, not even just to forgive you, but you want him at the center of your life. You can use this prayer 
And let me say this. You can even use it if you are a Christian, but right now you know you're a long, long way from God. So as our heads are bowed, are you ready? Here's here's the prayer. Just whisper it in your heart. Lord Jesus, I want you in my life. Central, Lord, King. I deliberately and intentionally turn to you. Forgive me. Lift my shame from me. Thank you that you can do this. Your work on the cross completes that. Your resurrection beats the power of death. Now be my Lord and my King. I choose you. Again, let's keep our heads bowed. If you just prayed that prayer for one of those reasons that I just stated, let me ask you to do something really simple, but it's a way of firming up and just declaring this is what I've just done. Can I ask you if you've just prayed that prayer, would you lift your hand and hold it up for a moment right now, please? Do it right now. And all around the room, people are doing that. Just hold it there for a moment longer. There are many of you, so you don't need to be intimidated. And you can lower your hand. Lord, would you reveal yourself to each one, whatever the reason for them praying that prayer. May today be an awesome day in their personal history. A great decision made. We agree together in Jesus' name. And everyone said...